0: Welcome to the Impact 360 Institute podcast, where our goal is to explore biblical worldview and servant leadership to equip you for everyday influence. Here's your host, author and director of cultural engagement, Jonathan Morrow.
1: How do we connect with the next generation? That's foundational if we want to disciple the next generation well, and I'm really excited to welcome to the Impact 360 podcast. Dr. Gene Fant, a friend of Impact 360 who has contributed to the brand new volume, "No Be Live, A 360-Degree Approach to Discipleship in a Post-Christian Era, edited by John Basie. Just real briefly about uh, Gene Fant, he currently serves as the president of North Greenville University, And a longtime leader in Christ-centered higher education, having served an academic leader and professor at Mississippi College, Union University, and Palm Beach Atlantic University. He has served as a contributing author to First Things and the Chronicle of Higher Education. Uh, Dr. Fan is the author of The Liberal Arts, A Student's Guide. And he and his wife, Lisa, have two grown twin children, and they live in Tigerville, South Carolina. He also happens to be a good friend. And so, Gene, I'm really excited to welcome you to the podcast today.
0: Well, thank you so much, and uh, it's exciting to be a part of this project, not just the book, but Impact 360 Institute and and all the work that is connected to it. Absolutely,
1: and you you do serve on our board, which we're so grateful for and have been a part of what we're doing in so many ways, and that's why I was really excited that you contributed to this brand new book, No Be, Live, A 360-Degree Approach to Discipleship in a Post-Christian Era. And really what I want to talk about and start off with is, is kind of why you felt the need to go the direction you did in the chapter that you contributed, really around kind of starting with maybe the evangelical church spectacular failure first, because I think that sets the table for kind of where we'll need to go. And we'll talk about that in the conversation. But why, why kind of start there?
0: Well, I I think as we're looking at the past in order to learn from it, and that's one of the huge values that we have, that really is in many ways something that's unique to Christianity, is not seeing the past as merely cyclical, but the past as preface and insight into God's redemptive plan. As we look to recent history to learn from it, I think we certainly see things that the evangelical church in particular has been a part of that. Created, I'm going to call it an illusion of success where the markers of success were things like popularity or statistical numbers or whatever. But in some ways those were distractions away from real success, which is spiritual growth and maturity and things like that. And so looking at really the last 30 or 40 years of where we've been, I think then uh, the crisis of the pandemic and things that are attached to the pandemic such as social unrest and so forth, it has created a good starting point, I think, for us to really think about what opportunities are ahead for us. I'll also add that right now, since the book was written, even just in that brief amount of time, we've seen the rise of what some people are calling failure porn, uh, that we're looking at failures of leaders, failures of institutions and things like that, and we're almost wallowing in that and beating ourselves up for that. But I think uh, what we really have as we look at these kinds of things from our recent past are avenues that give us opportunities to be able to really refine what we're doing and I think enhance what we're doing to be much more effective in the things that really matter.
1: Yeah, and I think that's so insightful because every generation is, is shaped by current cultural factors. That sets assumptions. It sets kind of the framework through which they'll interpret different things And so if we want to disciple Gen Z um, and equip them well, then we've got to understand what's shaping them. And also some of those big, higher level shaping forces around whether that be public leaders failing or whether that be different things like that, because they're watching all that play out in real time. They've also been deeply affected by kind of a post-COVID world, and we'll talk more about that in a little bit. But Talk a little bit about kind of the quest for relevance, maybe in the good sense of that, but also the downside of that, too, because I think there's kind of two sides to that coin.
0: Yeah, and I think that this quest for relevance, it is very much a longstanding thing. I'm by trade. I'm not just a university administrator, but I'm a literary scholar. And when you look at the literature, especially of a 100 years ago, the early 20th century, the thing that we talk about a lot there, the, the overriding thing coming out of especially World War I, is the theme of alienation and loneliness. And so uh, what we often would talk about is the quest for significance, for Uh, personal significance, for relational significance, you name it. Um, And and so I think that what's happened over the last century is we have had that morphing that has happened where it's gone from the crisis of alienation and loneliness to a crisis really that's, that's a little bit different as we're seeing it now, which is really one of connectedness and meaning and so forth. But it's a refining of a long-standing thing. I mean, you can even go all the way back to the, the Greeks and the Romans when uh, Aeneas and the Aeneid is is going through his journey and his struggle. What he's really looking for is a sense of connectedness and where is home. And I think that's something that God has hardwired into us um, because we really do seek a home that is a more permanent home a home that is an authentic home a significance that's an authentic significance i think it's just part of the way that god has wired us and in his creative authority and we're living in an era where we have to figure out how to translate that deep-seated longing into something that really is satisfying for uh, especially gen z
1: yeah, absolutely. And you know, one of the one of the subheadings of one of the sections of the chapter you contributed, I love I'd love you to kind of unpack a little bit. How are you going to keep them in youth group now that they've seen TikTok or Mortal Kombat or Netflix or, you know, fill in the blank with what's next? What point are you trying to get at there in terms of an observation around kind of what we're seeing both in the church but also how that's relating to the next generation?
0: Yeah, certainly culturally speaking, the dominant cultural thing where we are now is symbolism over substance, uh, spectacle over substance. And so what I'm trying to get at there is that we wired youth groups. It's, I think, one of the things that we've had a real challenge with is the cool factor. We've been, especially in evangelicalism, we've been really good at marketing. That's a very American or at least very Western approach to doing things. So we've been good at marketing. But a lot of times when I'm looking at how things have been communicated to youth in church, it's been about that cool factor. So you show essentially a highlight reel of what happened at the youth retreat or what happened in Bible study on Wednesday night or whatever. And, and those are things that certainly can be helpful. And certainly you can attract. They're attractional uh, in terms of sometimes getting in kids that are not uh, necessarily connected. But the problem is that if we're pursuing the spectacle, if we're pursuing the symbol and we are not pursuing substance, if those are not funnels and gateways to actual serious spiritual formation, then essentially what we're doing is we're setting them up for failure. And if students can't see the difference between the spectacle of church as an institution and the spectacle of entertainment or whatever as institutions as well, then we've got a real challenge. And the bottom line is, is that We can't compete. Ultimately, we just do not have the resources, the time, or the uh, really the intentionality to compete with what's going on secularly. And frankly, the impulse is we can start with good ideas and good motivations. But if we're trying to compete with the secular, it's a little bit like driving down the road. If you have ever been driving fast and you see something on the side of the road that captures your attention, the longer you look at it, the more you're going to find your car drifting toward that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of what happens is that we do spectacle that is rooted in a secular view of that instead of viewing it as really a funnel down into something more serious. And I think the pandemic really should be helping us to pivot toward realizing that, yes, there are front doors to our institutions, there are front doors and funnels to our ministries, but they've got to be leading to something. If all they do is stick out there in the foyer, And never really lead into something more deep and intentional then uh, we're really ultimately wasting our time and we're sharing the error of the secularists
1: yeah i think that's exactly right that my experience bears that out in terms of kind of seeing how that plays out you know the attendance only model or the entertainment Mm -hmm. model does not produce deep transformation of course it's the work of the spirit by grace but at the same time environments shape people and so it's I love how you put that if we're just bringing them in with spectacle, and a quote, unquote, emotional experience, only, then they're going to just start comparing that and go, well, here's what I can get here. Here's what I can get here. This is not really, quote, unquote, relevant to me anymore. It's actually not doing anything for me, and doesn't connect to these deeper questions, which, which we're going to get to in a second. And so as as we're yeah, thinking
0: well, of- can I, can I pop in for a second and add something to that? And here's another thing. The church um, ministry, uh, the calling of Christ demands something of us, and we are upfront about that, that your life is going to be changed and transformed by that. There's a lie that is taught with the spectacle of the secular, which is that there are no demands, that it is going to be liberty to you. You can do whatever you want to do. You can follow your heart. You can do all that. But what happens is, after a while, you begin to realize on that side that, in fact, they do have demands of you. They do have their own responses, restrictions, uh, you name it. They just are not upfront about it. And so I think a lot of times what happens is sometimes we'll have spectacle that is compared against spectacle. And they'll see the demands of what happens with becoming a Christ follower that there, there are things that come along with that, not in order to be saved, but because you are saved, there are ramifications, whereas they see on the other side that there is not that, and they, there's a false sense of freedom, and they don't understand what real freedom is, which is part of the reason why we've got to have good relationships, that we can help to kind of be tugboats helping to work with the, the Spirit of God uh, and helping students to navigate what is the reality, what is the really real. It's one of the great things about the book is that it really does underscore through the know, be, and live triad this thing that there's more to it than just emotion. There's more to it even than just intellect, Uh, that all these things combine together toward the really real, and that spectacle is not real, and it does not lead to what you thought that it did. It's a decoy instead of an entrance, and uh, I think that's really important for students to understand is that a lot of times people get snared and uh, a false sense of freedom and liberty that really leads to enslavement
1: yeah and i think that's exactly right and i think another observation that you made i think is spot on in terms of you know the secular liturgies if you will the performances that are required in our culture today do require things they just don't tell Mm -hmm. you up front what Mm -hmm. they are going to be and also how they're going to come to be enforced or how that pressure is going to be felt, but they're, they are coming. And so, cause there's no neutral uh, standpoint in that regard, it, it is shaping uh, the next generation as well. And so what, one of the things I love about kind of the direction you go in this, in this chapter, and I want to come back to is, is kind of you talk about the grand opportunity. And so, you know, we, we've, we've seen that look, students have been shaped by a generational marking moment of, of, kind of this pandemic and 2020 and everything, and they're going to be coming out of that. There's unprecedented screen use. We've talked about that. It's other chapters in the book that talk about that. There's unprecedented isolation. But you kind of talk about the grand opportunity of kind of the church, grace, and truth. And I want to walk through each one of those individually. So talk about the opportunity for uh, the first one, which is an incarnational church. Kind Kind of
0: paint a picture of that for us. I think the the temptation that we've had, especially in the West and especially in the U.S., is to have a programmatic church, that we have programs, we have uh, functions, we have events, we have all those things, and that we have drifted away from what certainly we see modeled in the New Testament, which is a connected or a community church. And so when the New Testament talks about the church and it says the church at Corinth, it literally means the church that is a part of the community in Corinth that is working in that context, that is a community unto itself. And as, especially the pandemic and some of the other things that are going on have been been happening, I think that it has created an unbelievable yearning and desire for connectedness and connectedness really can be found most purely in the incarnation of Christ and in the incarnational approach to church that brings Christ into the believers and the believers then into the community. And so looking at incarnational grace, where we have people that are connecting with one another in church, with others outside of the church, and then finding ways to tell their story, to allow grace to be articulated. One of the things I loved about the book, uh, one of my closest friends is Hunter Baker, who uh, writes his own personal testimony in the book and talks about while he's not sharing the testimony just to share a testimony, is to give an example of how God was weaving people together in his life to draw him ultimately to a spiritual decision and then to a spiritual transformational. And so in incarnational grace, I think that's part of what the church is called to do is to be agents of grace inside the church, outside of the church, weaving that throughout, and then because of those relationships to then be able to tell the story of grace, to commit to acts of grace within the community, acts of justice, acts of uh, connectedness, helping people to understand that God's ways are ways that are ultimately loving and so forth. And so I think that's a good first step is to think about it in that way.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Because, I mean, I think one of the things that's truly rare today is the embodied aspect of reality. Everything is going yeah. to the digital. Everything is going to Zoom world. Everything is going to virtual. All of those things. And in some ways out of convenience, and that's a whole separate conversation, how our kind of slavery to convenience just allows us to just mm-hmm. follow right along sometimes. I mean, there's there's great tools that are helpful when you're in a bind, but you don't want to build... A life on those tools. You don't want to build a ministry on those tools or a church on those tools or higher education on those tools. And so, Christianity, you know, Jesus, the Word became flesh, incarnational. It's like, you can't do this virtually. (laughs) Like it Mm -hmm. just doesn't work the way it intended. I mean, even, even John, when he's writing his letters, he's like, you know, I had to write you a letter, but I'd much rather be with you in person, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know? And so,
0: well, and here's another thing that I'm really seeing coming out of the pandemic is that everything is centered around convenience, but convenience ultimately leads to uh, anxiety because convenience is self-centered, right? It's, it's what mm -hmm. is convenient for me. And what happens is as we become more self-focused and more convenience-focused, and digital allows us to do that in an unprecedented way, what that also means is that we get away from the rhythms that life and community provide. It's one of the things we've seen at the university level. When students have come back, they have longed for, as crazy as it sounds, They've longed for the rhythms of, I have to go to class on Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 9 o'clock. They've longed for the rhythms of, I need to be at chapel. They've longed for the rhythms of, "Ah, here's homecoming, here's parents' weekend. Because rhythms and rituals often are ways to focus relationships to points, to uh, unity, toward community as well. And so convenience, I think, is actually one of the reasons why we're seeing such an amp up in mental health issues and anxiety issues, because ultimately convenience is self-centered.
1: Yeah, and I think that's really insightful. So as people who are listening to this conversation, and, and by the way, my conversation today was is with Dr. Gene Fant, who's contributed to the brand new book, No Live, a 360-degree approach to discipleship in a post-Christian era, in which we've kind of gathered together various thought leaders on this topic around this philosophy of ours here at Impact360 and how to apply to Gen Z based on our research with the Barna Group and everything else, like how do we engage this well? So one of the things that's a theme, hopefully, that you're picking up on if you were listening to this and you're a mom, a dad, grandparent, educator, pastor, is that rhythms matter, like embodied relationships matter. That's a big piece of if we want to disciple this next generation well, we've got to build and be intentional about fighting for that and creating that along the way. You know, Gene, talk about what would incarnational grace look like practically in the life of a teenager today or as maybe a leader relating to a teenager. Let's try to make a, give a concrete example of what that could practically look like in a way that would draw students in or draw teenagers into uh, the true story of christianity
0: you know my life's verse is first john 419 we love because he first loved us and i have found that working with young people they love so that others will love them (laughs) and what often happens is we are trying to be uh, agents of grace and community whether we're doing community service or we're doing uh, acts of kindness or, or whatever the case may be. It is so easy, especially when you're young and you haven't quite worked these things out. It is so easy to do those things in order to get the hit of positivity that comes. And, and I think that that hit of positivity, it's, it's almost a, a hormonal thing. It's something that's physiological for us. It's deep-seated because we do want to do these things. But to do it, to construct these things, to debrief these things after we've had events, to understand that we're doing these things because God loves us and we want others to know that God loves them, that's very different. In a very different paradigm than doing it because we want to be loved, we want to be praised, and all that that extrinsic versus intrinsic or I would actually call it an ontological um, reward that it's a reward that is because of who you are, because of who God is. That is a completely different paradigm. And so the temptation to drift is always to get away from the God part of that, and this has always been the temptation that evangelicals in particular are anxious about is is that we drift away from intentionality relative to the gospel and relative to faith and stuff like that. But our communities need us. The whole reason we have hospitals is because in the West, Christians decided that we needed to serve our communities. The whole reason we have orphanages in the West is because Christians decided that we needed to serve the fatherless and the motherless. The whole reason we have retirement homes is because in the West, Christians decided that the elderly, the widow in particular, needed someone to care for them. The whole reason we have colleges and schools. I mean, we can go through all of these things. It all started off because we were loved and we wanted the world and the community around us to know that God loves them too. But the drift is always to get away from that and to turn it into something that's isolated from its root. But here's the reality. When the fruit drops off the tree and is disconnected from the root, after a while it begins to rot and stink. We've got to keep these things connected to the root of the gospel and the truth that God loves us.
1: Absolutely. Which brings me to kind of that third prong of kind of your solution. So incarnational church, incarnational grace, and then incarnational truth. How does that flow from the first two, and what does that look like as we're trying to disciple Gen Z today?
0: Well, again, it's hard in a, in a brief time in a podcast to really get into you know ontological truth and and things like that. But the reality is just this. I, I remember I was I was reading, I think USA Today. This is probably, uh, gosh, probably fifteen or twenty years ago. But there had been a very tragic plane crash. And one of the things that they had in the digital version of USA Today was you could vote on what caused the plane crash. Was it pilot error? Was it weather? Was it whatever? And I thought that was just the stupidest thing I'd ever seen because it had absolutely no bearing on what actually caused the plane crash. And we have now gotten into this mindset where truth is poll-based or truth is individually defined and to get into what is actually the really real. Um, that, is, that is a hard thing for us to wrap our brains around because now we are so emotional. We are so reactionary. Our culture has driven us to this point. And the reality is that truth does exist. Gravity exists. It doesn't matter how confident I am that I can jump off the roof of a five-story building and fly. That confidence is ir- irrelevant to the truth of gravity. Gravity is not merely... Uh, a scientific law. It is a part of reality. It's a part of the created, not constructed, but created reality. And I think the more we understand that reality is rooted in God's revelation of himself, the more that we understand that reality is rooted in God's love for us, and that reality points back to that, the better off we're going to be. But as Christians, we have a responsibility to articulate that truth. I heard somebody say one time that if you aren't articulating the truth, you're like someone who says, uh, hey, can I get your phone number? And then you say, sure, do you want me to give you the numbers or do you want me to just like do something else? Well, the reality is you can only share a phone number with digits or maybe with tones on a touch tone or something like that. At some point, there's got to be that connection and that articulation. It's not just that we live the gospel. We've got to be able to articulate the gospel. It's not enough that we show the gospel. We've got to be able to articulate the gospel and actually share the truth that comes. And again, that truth is rooted in the very nature of God himself, that God uses truth to reveal himself to us and to reveal to us the truth that he loves us and has an unbelievable redemptive plan for us and that he seeks to have relationships with us.
1: Absolutely. And, I, and we've seen this firsthand. Um, you know, just recently, we are able to train our students here at Impact 360 and our fellows experience and take them on a on a mission trip. To Utah to engage with our LDS and Mormon friends and clarify the gospel. And you can't just live the gospel. You've got to actually tell the gospel and clarify who Jesus is. and Is what he's done enough? And what is grace? And how do you relate to God? And so training students, equipping them, inviting them in, but then actually having them go and talk to people who are far from God about the truth of the gospel. And so I think sometimes— and why I love that you you emphasize that incarnational truth. So it's not not devoid of relationship. It's not a cold abstraction, but it's fueled by the passion of what is real and what is true. But you can't just live it. Some people are like, well, people just watch my life. And they should watch your life. But you've also got to know what to say and, and tell people the truth. That's part of loving well. And those both go together, which is why we really want to call people and invite people to pursue this holistic approach a 360 degree approach to discipleship because you know there's for example right now in our in our culture it is not going to cost anyone anything i mean it will personally cost them but it is popular to serve other people right mm-hmm. but it is not popular to start a conversation about what's true or what's reality about the gospel or spiritual matters or is jesus the only way or male and female, are those the only biological sexes and gender? Is that what real, like, so you, so there's, it's interesting because Gen Z is growing up in an age in which certain things are seen as very comfortable and uh, in some ways won't cost them anything in that regard. And other things are extremely costly and discipleship involves calling them to both. And so I love what you're, what you're talking about there, you know, and as we, as we think about that, you know, as you comment, you talk about, you know, isolation is so common, the deeply felt existential questions they have. Um, there's fear and deep divisions they walk with and live with. What, what have you found is an effective way to help Gen Z connect to true meaning in life, that bigger, that bigger story that ties these things together? Because I think they're desperately hungry for it. But what have you seen in regards to connecting them to, to meaning?
0: well i think a lot of that ends up being rooted actually in a in a cross generational context we have so siloed out youth culture that it is often the case that students are being able to only learn from other students and peers but the reality is is that most of your peers have not had the the life experience or the training to really talk much about significance. So what ends up happening is you almost end up with a hall of mirrors where you have peers who are reflecting peers, who are reflecting peers, who are reflecting peers. Whereas the church has constantly underscored this, that it is important for older people to mentor younger people and for younger people to be mentored by older people. And I think that, again, this points out the incarnational value that we don't just stick the youth down in the back end of the church, but that we have people that are uh, connecting with them, often one-on-one often in smaller things uh, within family units especially where students don't come from functional families that we are inviting them into our own homes and are creating that and so doing that where there are people that are near peers so a high school student that is being mentored by a college student but also has older folks that are being able to come into that. One of my family's personal wonderful experiences was when Impact 360 Institute started now nearly 20 years ago. My parents uh, were invited to come and be grandparents in residence for a week, I think the first two years. And they were able to come and be incarnational older Mm -hmm. folks who are working with these 18-year-olds and in a casual setting they were being able to ask questions and hear their stories and, and things like that. And by the way, I think that may be something that's in Nathan Finn's chapter in the book is that value of narrative and storytelling, that it's not just cross generational. It is also narrative, but it's narrative that's, that's in the context of truth. I heard somebody say one time that we think of truth as a sword and I think the programmatic church used the sword of the truth to do a lot of stabbing and slicing, but this person said you also can use the sword of truth merely To point to things. (laughs) And I think that that's sort of what happens in in relationships is that we do come armed with the truth, but we can use that truth to gently point to things and to say, hey, have you thought about this? Hey, uh, as you're working on this, what about this? Or, hey, when I was your age, I did this. Let me tell you about some lessons that I had. Uh, and then to open up the opportunity for that feedback cycle that then happens. And this really goes all with you. through. I have a really, really dear friend who's 99 years old, and she is still mentoring younger women, younger meaning in their 70s. <laughs> uh, but she still has that passion for that, and to watch that then trickle down. Uh, in education, we talk about the inkuklios paideia, which is the old Greek term for the circle of scholars, That as a professor, I have people who poured into my life, faculty members, mentors who poured into my life, and then I have a responsibility to turn around and hand those things, uh, shape those things through my experiences and my education, but to hand that down to the next generation, and that, in fact, we live inside a living stream of faith that is connected Yes, all the way back to Christ himself, that Christ had disciples who had disciples who had disciples. And we can go all the way through and understand that this is one of the great mysteries of the Christian faith is that we are connected not just through these relations, but we are connected through actually the incarnation itself and through the creation itself. Um, And and so we don't have to be lonely. We don't have to be alienated. We don't have to go look for significance. God has already given us all those things. It's just that a lot of times we don't recognize them. And being in a community that recognizes that, I think, is one of the great opportunities that we have here. As we're coming out of the pandemic and thinking about a post-Christian culture and things like that, I think we've got unbelievable opportunities to bring hope and faith where currently hope and faith are dear, dear, scarce resources.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think calling the next generation out of themselves and beyond themselves and connecting them Mm to this intergenerational story that's true about reality that's bigger than them I think is massively important and part of our discipleship in any generation, but especially given the cultural factors that have shaped this generation And so I think that's something we all need to pay attention to who love and care for uh, the next generation. If you've been listening to this conversation, you need to go to impact360.org and click on the books and find a way to get a copy of this brand new book, No Be Live, A 360-Degree Approach to Discipleship in a Post-Christian Era. It's available anywhere you can find books, all that online. So definitely check that out. It's edited by our own John Basie, just an amazing group of contributors who are hitting all sorts of angles about what's shaping Gen Z. How do we respond? How do we engage? How do we connect with them? uh, What does it look like uh, to do that in a way that helps them deepen that relationship with Jesus in the realities of current culture that they're swimming in? And just really, Gene, want to appreciate you and the contribution you've made to this book, the contribution you make uh, serving in higher education and your passion for the next generation. Um and your friendship with the Institute. We're just grateful for who you are and all, all that you've done. So thanks for joining
0: us today on the podcast. Well, it's been my pleasure. And I, I do want to say to the listeners that if you have not discovered all of the resources that are available through the website, through the Impact360Institute, I guess, .org, is that right? Yes. Uh, if you've not discovered all the resources that are there, there are not only podcasts, there are databases, there are... Videos there, you, you name it. It is a resource rich opportunity. And I just appreciate the folks who make this possible. I'm a parent of kids who've been through Impact 360's gap year experience and, um, just really deeply appreciate the labor of love that this is and am uh, very humbled to be a part of this personally.
1: Well, thank you again. And I would just echo that because we're doing this on a day-to-day basis here, whether that's in the summer with high school students or with college students. Our fellows our gap year, our master students um, in grad school, creating that incarnational type environment where they can connect relationally, but they can go deep and they can know, be, and live. And I think that's a, it's exciting to see God at work and using that to equip the next generation. So as you're listening to this, I hope you'll pick up a copy of the book, Nobody Be Live, and I hope more than anything else that you will find someone in the next generation to pray for, to love on, to invest in, and to equip in the faith. And I think you'll find that a deeply rewarding thing, but also a deeply needed thing because they desperately want to connect with you in those ways. So maybe that's an action step for you. So again, thanks for tuning into the podcast today and definitely encourage you to check out um, know Be Live, this brand new book that'll equip you with some of these tools to care about and equip and disciple the next generation.
0: For more information about our on campus worldview and leadership experiences for students and our accessible online courses like Explore Truth and Explore the Resurrection, visit Impact360.org. Impact360 Institute. Know. B. Live.